0: Well, today, as we draw near the end of our Epiphany Sermon series, Jesus Revealed, we are looking at the seventh and final sign that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John in order to make himself known to the world. And in this last sign that John shares with us, we have what I believe is by far the most profound of Jesus' signs, but also the most difficult to accept of Jesus' signs, it's the most profound of Jesus' signs because in this sign, the glory of God is shown forth in more amazing, more miraculous, more joyful, and more hopeful, and more glorious ways than in any of the other signs that Jesus has performed up to this point. But it is also the most difficult to accept of Jesus' signs because in order to get to the goodness that is available to us in this sign, we must first face a heartache, which is often difficult For us to accept, and which can create deep doubt and real questioning of the goodness of God in our lives. Yet, I believe that if by faith that we will pay attention to this final sign that Jesus gives, and if we will follow this sign to where it leads, then we will be able to see the glory of God, and we will experience the love and the goodness of God in a way that we've never seen it before, and in a way that would not be possible to see it. If the hardships hadn't first occurred. And so, as we engage this sign, we're going to look at the trials that we must face before the sign, the truths that we discover through this sign, and the triumph we experience by the sign. So, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 11 as we consider the final of Jesus' signs in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. First, uh, we're going to begin by considering the trials that we must face before the sign. And unfortunately, terrible trials are inevitably involved in this sign. Because in order to get to this sign, the disciples must first experience a great loss. And that's where the story begins. At the beginning of John chapter 11, we're told that a certain man named Lazarus was ill. Now Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha, whom whom Jesus interacts with a number of times in the Scriptures. In Luke chapter 10, we have the account of Jesus visiting with Mary and Martha at their home. In John chapter 12, Mary anoints Jesus' feet with a precious perfume and, and wipes His feet with her hair. The point being that Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jesus, they knew one another. They loved Jesus and Jesus loved them. And so when their brother Lazarus became ill, they naturally sent word to Jesus saying to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And this is just our version of a prayer request, right? But when we have a crisis or there's something going on in our lives that we need help with and that we can't fix on our own, we send word to Jesus. Lord, please help us. We need you. That's what Mary and Martha are doing here. Knowing Jesus' goodness, knowing his power, knowing his love for them and for their brother, they send him a request. We have a need. Please come and help us. And what we like to believe about situations like this is that when we have a need, Jesus will come to our aid. But this is where our story gets incredibly difficult. Because what we read in verse 6 is that when Jesus learned that Lazarus was ill, when he received this request from Mary and Martha, rather than drop everything and come to Lazarus' aid, rather than send the help that they needed to make their brother well, rather than responding to the emergency situation that was before them, Jesus did nothing. The scriptures tell us that he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Rather than come to their aid, Jesus delayed. Why in the world would he do that? Why in the world would, would Jesus delay in coming to the aid of a disciple that he loved? This isn't like the case of the angel in Daniel chapter 10, who as soon as he heard Daniel's prayer request was, was sent out and was coming to Daniel's aid, but was delayed for 21 days because of the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Apparently, in that situation, there was some sort of mysterious spiritual battle that delayed the response to Daniel's prayer. And and this isn't like the situation when Jesus was on his way to heal the synagogue ruler's daughter in in Mark chapter 5, when he got sidetracked by the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. In, In that instance, Jesus was coming to help, but then got delayed by a different need. This situation isn't like those situations at all. Here, there's no mention that Jesus was delayed for any particular reason or by any antagonistic force or or by any other pressing need. Instead, he appears to have delayed his arrival intentionally. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. And that verb, which is translated, he stayed, in the Greek, it is an active verb indicating that it was an action that was carried out by the subject of the sentence, as opposed to a passive verb where the subject of the sentence is being acted upon. What that means is simply that Jesus is doing the staying. The staying is not being done to him. It was his decision, his intent to stay longer in the place where he was rather than go to help Lazarus who was ill. And this decision by Jesus to delay and responding to their request for help had terrible consequences. But We begin to see the effect of this delay in verse 17, where by the time that Jesus got to Mary and Martha, after his two-day delay and, and after the time that it took him uh, for him to travel to where they were, Lazarus had died. By the time that Jesus got there, he had actually already been in the grave for four days. That timing of four days is significant because in Judaism, it was believed that the souls of those who had died hovered over the body for three days in hopes of returning to the body. But by the fourth day, they believed that there was no longer any chance of resuscitation. This is loosely alluded to in the story where when Martha suggests that by this time, Lazarus's body would have begun decomposing and there would have been a stench. Up until this point, at any time before this point, there would have been hope that Jesus could still have done something to help this situation. But because it was the fourth day, there was no longer any hope. And the reason that I make that point is because it appears that Jesus intentionally waited all through the period where where Mary and Martha might have had hope for something good to happen. And He didn't show up until after all of their hope was gone. Jesus didn't come to their aid until after their situation was hopeless. And this decision to delay and and the lack of hope that it produced caused great sorrow and confusion and, and disappointment for the disciples. They experienced sorrow due to the loss of their beloved brother. In verse 33, we see Mary weeping and those who were with her weeping But we're told that a crowd had gathered to console Mary and Martha in their sorrow. They were brokenhearted over their loss. They were experiencing deep and painful grief. And they were disillusioned and angry with Jesus. They were blaming Him for their brother's death. Mary and Martha both, at different times, in verse 21 and verse 32, complained to Jesus, saying, If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. They knew that Jesus could have done something. They knew he could have changed the outcome of Lazarus' fate. They knew he could have spared them of this suffering, but he didn't. Mary and Martha weren't alone in this thinking. The crowds blamed Jesus also. In verse 37, they said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They all knew that Jesus could have helped Lazarus. He could have done something about the illness. He could have hurried in response to their request and cured his illness. He even could have cured Lazarus' illness from afar, like he did with the centurion's servant in Matthew chapter 8, or the Capernaum official's son in John chapter 4, or the Syrophoenician woman's daughter in Matthew 15. In each of those instances, Jesus healed them from afar based on the request of the family and friends of those who were ill. But here, in this situation, with Mary and Martha, he intentionally didn't come until it was too late. And so they were grieved, and they were disillusioned, and they were hurt, and they were understandably questioning Jesus' goodness and his love for them. If you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. I wonder how many of you can relate to those emotions. How many of you know that pain? How many of you have faced a significant loss where you cried out to God to intervene in a situation? Where you you prayed and pleaded again and again and again for Him to enter into a trial that you were facing? And there was nothing but silence from heaven. God didn't intervene. He didn't come to help. And in the end, you were left with a deep and painful grief. Left with a, a deep and painful question. Couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept our loved one from dying? You're left with a deep and painful resentment. If you had been here, my child wouldn't have died. My mother wouldn't have passed away. My my spouse wouldn't have perished. My friend would, would still be here. God, you could have done something, but you didn't. Why? If you don't know that pain yet, you will. Because eventually, we all face it. And I believe that this is some of the most difficult wrestling that we will ever have to do with God. Dealing with a difficult loss. When we believe that God could have done something about it, but He didn't. How do we make sense of that? These trials lead many people to the age old argument against God that if God was all loving and if, if He was all powerful, then He would do something about the suffering in this world. But because there is so much suffering all around us, God either must not be all-loving because He allows the suffering to continue, or He must not be all-powerful because He's unable to stop it. But either way, that's not a God that anyone wants to worship. But what that argument fails to realize, and what our hearts often fail to realize, in the midst of the deep suffering of this world and the deep suffering in our lives is the great truth that we discover through this miracle of the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Because the great truth that is revealed in this sign is this, that it is actually in God's love for us, that He at times allows suffering in order that His great power and unsurpassed glory might be made known in our lives said another way and more succinctly, the truth that we see in this passage is this, that it is loving for God to allow suffering if it leads to us knowing more of His glory and His power. Because that is ultimately our highest aim as human beings. That is ultimately the very best thing that could ever happen to us, to know the glory of God in Christ. That is what is best for us. And so what we see in this story is that God is all-loving and He is all-powerful. But we can only come to see those realities through the suffering of this story. We see God's love exhibited when He allows His disciples to suffer in order that they might know His glory and His power. And I know that that's hard to understand. And I know that that doesn't make sense to us when we are in the midst of our suffering. But when we take a step back, when we look at at God's bigger picture, when we consider that reality from, from the outside looking in, it actually does make sense. And I want to show you how it makes sense by looking at this reality in three different ways. I want us to consider this reality in a practical way. I want us to consider it through the lens of this passage. And then finally, I want to consider it through our personal experience. So first, this makes sense in a practical manner. I mean, think about it. If Jesus had healed Lazarus when he was sick, that would have been very good. But if Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, that would be even better. Resurrection demonstrates an even greater more glorious power of God than healing does. To bring healing from sickness is good, but to bring life from death is impossible. Doctors can make sick people well, but no one can bring the dead back to life. One makes you appreciate God, the other makes you fall on your knees and worship Him. Do you see how resurrection is greater than healing? But in order to get to that greater, more amazing glory, which we all want and which we all need, we must first experience the suffering that leads up to it. There can't be resurrection without there first being death. And so, if knowing Christ and the power of His resurrection is our ultimate aim, if that is our ultimate good, as Paul suggests in Philippians, then we must first know the fellowship of His sufferings. In a practical reality, there can't be the joy of resurrection without there first being the sorrow of death. And so, God is actually being loving in allowing us to suffer if it leads us to His even greater glory. That practical reality is what is demonstrated in our passage this morning. In verse 4, Jesus tells His disciples that everything that's going to happen to Lazarus is going to be for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Everything that will happen to Lazarus is to demonstrate the glory and the power of God through Lazarus' life. But in order to get to that glory, in order for that glory and power to be demonstrated and witnessed and appreciated and celebrated, Jesus must lovingly allow them to suffer. And that is what we see in verses 5 and 6, where we read that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus loved them, therefore he did not go to them when he found out that Lazarus was ill. What the Bible is telling us is that it was because Jesus loved them that he did not go to help. It wasn't out of a lack of love that Jesus allowed Lazarus to die. It was out of an abundance of love that he allowed Lazarus to die and them to suffer for a little while so that they might ultimately experience the glory and the power of God in the resurrection that was to come. In other words, it was more loving to put Lazarus through death and his sisters through grief, if that would reveal more of God's glory to them and more of the glory of Christ. So, it makes sense practically, and we see it in our passage But we also know this dynamic to be true personally as well. And I want to make this final point by showing you a video that I think gives us the very smallest taste of the glory that God has in store for us that we can only experience when we first endure suffering. So I want you to watch this video. (laughs) See, There is a glory in those moments that can only be experienced because those loved ones first suffered separation from one another. If those moms and dads and sons and daughters had only been gone for a day or two, if they had been gone for a weekend or even for a couple of weeks and then they came home, the reunions would have been nothing like what we just witnessed. They would have been glad to see each other, sure, but nothing like what we just witnessed. No, the pure and unbridled joy and exuberance and celebration that those families experienced, the glory of those moments, only comes because they first suffered a real and painful separation from one another and then were unexpectedly reunited again. And that gives us just the smallest taste. But can you imagine the glory? Can you imagine the celebration? Can you imagine the joyful tears? Can you imagine how fast you will run into your loved one's arms when you see them again in glory? Can you imagine the worship that we will give to Jesus when He makes that moment a reality? Despite how difficult it is to be apart, there is a greater glory that awaits Which leads us to the triumph of this sign. Because after all of the grief and all of the pain and all of the disappointment of this passage, after all of the questioning and all of the blaming and all of the doubt that Jesus faced by those who were hurting because of his delay, after Mary and Martha had lost all hope of ever seeing their brother again, Jesus entered into their pain and their suffering and revealed the glory of God in a way that it had never been revealed before. He showed them the love of God in a way that they had never seen before. And He demonstrated the power of God in a way that they had never experienced it before. Jesus had the stone which covered Lazarus' grave removed. He called for Lazarus to come out of the grave, and to the awe and wonder and joy and delight of all, Lazarus came forth. "'Alive and well, he walked out of that grave that held him "'and was set free from the grave cloths which bound him. "'In the raising of Lazarus, the glory of God was made known, "'and the Son of God was glorified. "'And it was the best thing that could have ever happened to them, "'because now in a deeper and more profound way than ever before, "'they knew Christ, the power of His resurrection.'" And the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, church, I just want to acknowledge that for those of you who have suffered great loss, particularly for anyone who is right now walking in the midst of a great loss, this can be a very difficult message to hear. This can be a difficult truth to grasp. And God's love for you in the midst of your suffering can be incredibly hard to find. And I simply want to acknowledge that that's okay. It is okay to grieve. It is, it is okay to mourn. It is okay to weep. It, it is okay to question. Because the reality is that we are not living at the end of this story. We're living in the middle of it. We haven't yet seen the full glory of God revealed in our lives. We've just experienced much of the pain and the death and the heartache that comes from living in a fallen and broken world. We're living in the days when Lazarus gets sick, but we're living in the days when Lazarus dies. We're not yet living in the days when he is gloriously raised. And so I want you to know that it is okay to struggle with this passage, and it is okay to struggle with this truth. But what I do want you to know And what I want you to see and and what I want you to hold on to is that in both of our passages today, God speaks a profound word to those who are suffering. In our reading out of Exodus, God's people had been brutally enslaved for 400 years. And God's message to them from that burning bush was, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. I see you. I hear you. I know how much you are hurting, and I am coming to help you. And in this seventh sign from Jesus, we see the same. The Lord is aware of what is happening in our lives. He hears our requests he is troubled and sorrowed by the power of death in this world weeping with us when we weep and so he comes to help and in both of these stories from the scriptures and in the story of your life there is a glory that awaits those who have their eyes on the lord the israelites eventually walk into the promised land Lazarus eventually walks out of his tomb. You will eventually walk into the glory of a new creation. There is hope for the hopeless. There is freedom for those who are enslaved. There is life for those who are bound in the grave. It may take four days. It may take 40 years the Israelites were enslaved and waiting for 400 years. But when the time is right, God comes. And so we are encouraged to not lose heart. Though our outer self is passing away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And what the scriptures tell us and what these stories show us is that these momentary struggles that we face are preparing for us an eternal glory that is beyond all comparison and that in the end our joy will somehow be made greater by what we have suffered in this life. And it is all because of Jesus. That is what his seventh sign shows us. So may we pay attention to it. May we believe it. May we live in light of it for God's great glory, and for our great good. Amen.